Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the BMO Capital Markets hosts a conference call on COVID-19, what it means this week. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist, BMO Capital Markets. Please go ahead, Mr. Belsky. Thanks, Emily. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the seventh weekly installment of BMO Financial Group's official call on COVID-19 featuring Dr. John White and subject matter experts uh, from BMO Capital Markets. On today's call will be John White, who's the Chief Medical Officer at WebMD, followed by three subject matter experts and myself from BMO Capital Markets. First off will be George Farmer, our Senior Biotech Analyst. Then our Head of Fixed Income Currencies and Commodities, Margaret Cairns. And then finally, Michael Gregory, our Deputy Chief Economist for all of BMO Financial Group. I will also, Chief Investment Strategist Brian Belsky, layer in some investment strategy thoughts while we queue up questions from Emily in the crowd. Remember, this is your opportunity to ask questions uh, from the people on the panel. And so we'd love to be a resource to you to provide value-added information. Before we get started, just a reminder that I point you to our BMO disclosures via the web link enclosed at the bottom of the invitation that you have received to access this call. And also, obviously, given that we're talking about medical information, just a quick reminder that if you need medical advice, please go directly uh, to anyone on the, on the medical side that you use from a physician and or healthcare professional. As a reminder, John White is a popular physician and writer who has been communicating to the public about health issues for nearly two decades. Dr. White is the Chief Medical Officer, as previously stated, at WebMD. In this role, Dr. White leads efforts to develop and expand strategic partnerships that create meaningful change around important and timely public health issues. Prior to WebMD, Dr. White served as the Director of Professional Affairs and Stakeholder Engagement at the Center for Drug Eval and Research at the U.S. FDA. Also, please note that Dr. White is a frontline soldier in terms of this war on COVID as he continues to see clients and patients on a real-time basis in the Maryland and D.C. area. And with that, I'm going to hand the ball off to John White, and you can get us going. Dr. White? Thank you, Brian, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to start off with world data then move to Canadian data, and then United States data, and then talk about what's lately been in the news, what we know, and what we don't know. So globally, there are now over 3 million cases of coronavirus, resulting in over 200,000 deaths. In Canada, there have been 46,898 cases, with 2,000 560 deaths. Just a few days ago, Dr. Teresa Tam, who is a a public health official in in Canada, talked about there really is in Canada a slowing of the coronavirus toll. And that's because the death toll is rising less than 10% for the ninth day in a row. Lately, it's been around 6%. So we really are seeing a flattening of the curve or some in Canada are saying, planking the curve. So 
tremendous progress in Canada in terms of infections and cases. Now, the Prime Minister uh, has said that isolation measures to fight the outbreak are going to remain for the time being. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in my uh, time allotted today because that's important for all of North America and globally. And some of Canada's 10 provinces have announced plans to gradually reopen their economies, still talking about social distancing, physical distancing, and protective equipment in the workplace. And the Prime Minister has pointed out that the exact measures are going to differ as infection rates vary among the provinces. But he has been talking about having national coordination, which is somewhat different than the United States. And he's also pointed out that restarting the economies of the provinces are not going to depend on presuming that people who have become infected have developed immunity. And this relates to the antibody testing. And for those that live in Ontario, uh, know that the school closures have extended until May 29th. So social distancing uh, isn't ending right now, but we're going to see some changes. In the United States, we have nearly a million cases with over 55,000 deaths. But the hotspots are very relevant to keep in mind. It's not geographically uh, even throughout the country. And I'm going to send a, a map of the hotspots in the United States. But if you took New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Illinois, and California, those are over half the cases and half the deaths. So I told you there were over 55,000 deaths. New York itself is over 16,000 of those deaths. And the next highest one is New Jersey at 5,000, nearly a third of what New York is. So it's a point of reference. I wanted to include some polling data on today's discussion where a recent poll in the United States showed that 40% of people say they personally know someone who has tested positive for coronavirus or personally know someone who thinks they had or have coronavirus. And 10%, one out of 10, said they personally know someone who has died from complications related to coronavirus. Let's talk about testing because there's been some um, new announcements on there. You all know about diagnostic testing, which is the nasal swab. There's now a saliva test to diagnose coronavirus, and we believe it's just as accurate as a nasal swab. The important point about that is you still need to have the medical professional collect the specimen when you're done. But LabCorp and some others are, have announced that there is an in-home test that's less invasive, meaning you don't have to stick it as far up your nasal cavity. You just partly do in your nose, and then you bring it to a FedEx station and ship it. Uh, and then the results are back in a day or so after they get it. That also requires the prescription of a health professional and meeting certain criteria. Early on, that's just for health professional and first responders, but this in-home testing is likely to expand. It's all about antibody testing right now, too, which is different. That's not going to tell me that you have the test today. That's going to tell me that you had it several weeks ago or several days ago. So it's not to diagnose coronavirus if you feel sick, but rather to tell us if you've had it and you developed antibodies. And that's been in the news a lot. There's the point-of-care tests, which are the pinprick. They're qualitative, tells me whether or not you have antibodies. And then the, there's the serum, which you go for a blood draw or someone comes to your home. It's more quantitative. 
But the challenge has been there have been numerous deficiencies in testing accuracy. These come under an FDA authorization. I've talked about that before. That's a lower standard of accuracy during a public health emergency. And we're still learning whether the presence of antibodies gives immunity, which gives protection. That's what we care about. But we need much more research. These immunity certificates or passports that we heard about a couple weeks ago, we don't hear about them as much. Most data shows we don't have enough information to conclusively tell us that. And if anything, antibody testing may tell us more about herd immunity, which means the status of the people in the community who might have been asymptomatic and actually infected, but now have antibodies. And there's some data today from Sweden that talks about by June, more than half the population may have antibodies. And once we get to 60 to 70%, we have good herd immunity. We still have a way to go in other areas of the country. And I also want to talk about what's in the news lately. There's been a lot of discussion whether people can get reinfected with coronavirus. And the WHO said last week that there's no evidence that antibodies protect from reinfection. And I want to tell you, there's only been a few cases where someone who had coronavirus eventually tested negative, then later tested positive. We do not believe that this is a virus that causes reinfection. There's no data to support that. We believe that there were problems with testing, either the diagnostic testing or antibody testing. And we do know that if you have a negative test, sometimes you should be retested. There's no evidence on the other side that antibodies don't provide some sense of immunity. We need more data, but we also have to be practical. It's a simple RNA virus. It's not that complicated. It's likely that it acts like other respiratory viruses. It's not to diminish the seriousness of the infection, but we also don't want to alarm people, and language is very important. It's more likely than not that we develop some sense of immunity after infection. We need to get better tests. We hear a lot of talk about reopening. It's common right now talking about in the United States and some cities and counties and states are starting to reopen. Uh, we just mentioned it about Canada. Federal guidelines in most regions suggest the following need to take place. And I'm gonna send something from the National Governors Association which has summarized a lot of the different groups that have talked about different strategies to reopen. But there's really four criteria that you need to meet um, to start to think about reopen. And, it, and these make sense. You need to have a two-week decline of declining cases, right? If we know that the incubation period is 10 to 14 days, the data is always going to be a little bit behind. So let's see that trending downwards. And we're starting to see that in many cities. We need to protect the surge capacity of hospitals. We're talking about returning some elective surgeries. So you need to make sure that if there is a surge, you need to be able to make sure that you can provide good care. And this is where testing comes in. And this is the big challenge that we've had. We don't have enough and adequate testing. That's how you're going to know if you're going to have a surge capacity. Now, the Rockefeller Foundation recently put out a report last week that says we should be doing 30 million tests a week. That's not a, a mistake. 30 million tests a week. We've done about 4 million over the entire course. So that's a long way to get there. They feel we need 300,000 contact tracers 
to go and identify people, isolate folks who might have been exposed. That's an important element. And they estimate that this will cost $100 billion. $100 billion. And they have pledged $15 million. So we do need to think, and maybe we'll talk about it in Q&A, is that practical to be doing all those tests? I wish we could, but there are challenges. And then when we talk about contact tracing, that's about putting people in a box, so to speak, a virtual box when you know they've been infected and who they've come into contact with. And there's talk about those 300,000 uh, contact tracers, but it's also about what's the role of tech. And I talked about that last time, the role of Google and Apple. But I wanted to reference a, a survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation that said less than 50% of people were willing to download an app that does contact tracing unless they, unless they were specifically told that allows people to go back to work and businesses to reopen. And 60% actually wanted the government, the CDC or the state health department to manage the data. 70% of people are not okay with private tech managing the data. Uh, and there really was a concern that some people are concerned that the private sector companies will sell their data, which is more concerning than the government using the data for purposes beyond tracking the spread of the virus. Just points to keep in mind, because you can't have contact tracing with an app if people don't opt in to participate. And the other thing to keep in mind that even if we start to open, the public isn't necessarily going to go to use services, go to use services. And there's been some conflicting information over the past two days here in the United States. Uh, uh, one of the coordinators, Deborah Burks, has said social distancing will last through the summer. She hasn't specified what that means. And then Mike Pence, the vice president, has talked about the virus should be behind us by Memorial Day. So we've had conflicting messages, but the reality is we will likely have some measure of social distancing throughout the summer. Probably not what it looks like today, but some measures. And I will tell you on WebMD, people are searching ending shutdown. Uh, so folks you know, are really starting to think about what that means, what social distancing looks like, how can that work in a restaurant, is that even possible? The other biggest item that I think we're going to start talking about, and this has been on uh, National Public Radio, various podcasts, the Society for Human Resource Management, is talking about what the office setting might look like post-COVID. And under most guidelines right now, even these federal and state, remote work, telework is still being encouraged. But there's a discussion going on now about what steps need to be taken to bring workers back to the office Everyone can't telework in all of their fields. So there's a discussion in any business around whether they will need to retrofit, whether we need to be doing temperature checks of people coming in, whether we need to adjust HVAC, whether we need to time shift uh, people's work in the office. Do they need to wear facial coverings? We're even seeing people are asking about, should elevators be voice activated so people don't touch? And, and, and doors automatic. And of course, we have to address the school issue. If there's no school for kids, that often means no office time for many parents. But here's what I want to talk about from a health perspective. The goal we need is science to protect physical health, but in some ways, it's also to protect mental health. So just because you touch an elevator door or an elevator button, doesn't mean you're going to catch coronavirus. And we need to move 
people away from the sphere and talk about the science of transmissibility, which we've talked about on other calls. But let's be honest, part of that is addressing the mental health of employees and making them feel confident that coming to work is something they can and should do and feel safe about. That's where we're going to have a lot of discussions, and that's where effective communication, that's where effective science is going to be brought into it, and also that we need to figure out a way to ramp up testing. So I always like to end with some concerns I have as well as where I'm optimistic about. Um, So testing does remain a critical concern. We really need to ramp up testing. Can we get to 30 million a week by June? I'm not sure. But let's start thinking about how we use it uh, on a wider scale. And then how do we have more clear communication that's coordinated um, and address these issues of transmissibility and, and not making people be overly fearful, as well as showing what their individual risk may be based on age and other chronic conditions. But where I have a lot of optimism is the number of cases and deaths are down considerably. The number of cases and deaths versus the initial projections even at this point in time, is a fraction of the initial estimates. It's still tragic that the tens of thousands of deaths that we've had in the United States, the thousands of deaths in Canada and around the world, but we have implemented effective public health strategies, um, and and that's a, a success story to some degree. And we're going to see over the next few weeks how we can manage living with the virus in communities. I know others are going to talk about where we might be in treatments, but we're going to need to live with the virus in the communities for some time. It, it is decreasing. We're not sure how much yet. We're not sure how temperature is going to impact it. But having the important discussion about the consequences of not getting care for other conditions, as well as the impact of the economics on our health, is becoming a much more vigorous discussion, and we need to have that discussion. So I'm optimistic that we're sorting out a strategy of the key to reopening. We're we're talking about it based on risk and science, and I think we're going to continue to see progress, and we have implemented um, effective strategies. Okay. And with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Brian. I'll be happy to answer questions. Thank you, Dr. White. Now we're going to hear from George Farmer, Senior Biotech Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. Go ahead, George. Great. Thanks, Brian. Um, And thanks for that, Dr. White. That was really interesting. Um, Today I'd like to talk a little bit about um, uh, some of the progress that has been made with uh, various therapies to treat COVID-19. I'll start off with um, the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. This has been certainly a hot topic in the news of late. Um, we've uh, accumulated a lot of data since this uh, first came as a, as a potentially promising treatment. Um, recall that there were some early results, um, particularly out of France, that showed some early hints of activity uh, with hydroxychloroquine, especially when combined with uh, the antibiotic azithromycin. Um, However, these studies were not done with a control arm. They were not very robust. Um, then, since then, coming out of France, there had been a broader study, again without controls, but still looking very compelling. Um, now we have some results from comparative studies, and uh, unfortunately, they're looking less promising. Um, there was a, a study out of China, probably the first randomized study, 
which uh, showed some interim results and did not see any difference uh, between uh, patients treated with uh, hydroxychloroquine or just standard of care. Uh, there was no difference in, in the, the rate of viral clearance, but there was an impact on a biomarker called CRP, which is a biomarker of inflammation. Uh, the drug did appear to improve those levels, uh, which is consistent with the drug uh, having anti-inflammatory properties. Uh, there was also a retrospective analysis of records from the uh, from VA hospitals uh, comparing patients uh, who had received the drug versus those who did not, um, also uh, patients who had received the combination with azithromycin. And again, nothing different as uh, no difference uh, in overall survival in those groups. And then we just learned that a trial confined to New York State that enrolled uh, about 600 patients uh, no details have been provided, but it was announced that there was no clinical benefit. So uh, along those lines as well, FDA has recommended against the use of hydroxychloroquine for uh, treating COVID-19 patients outside of a hospital setting. Uh, and they, you know, they've raised these issues of cardiac toxicity. Uh, this is certainly a step back from the emergency use authorization that was issued uh, uh, end of March for hospitalized patients. And, you know, just raises a lot of questions, I think. Um, you know, was that initial use uh, in, in any way politicized? Um, I, I don't think so. Uh, F, you know, FDA has already approved hydroxychloroquine. It's been on the market for a, a long time. And there certainly was anecdotal evidence that supported that. Um, and also the, the use was confined, confined to, uh, to a hospital setting to enable uh, monitoring of patients. So what does this mean for for these drugs? Uh, not good. It's still maybe um, a drug that can be used as last resort, but I think um, my view is it's time to move on. Um, there are some uh, direct antivirals that have been uh, that are being tested and um, uh, have uh, have been tested. We've seen some data coming out of a trial evaluating a drug called Remdesivir. This is in development by a company uh, called Gilead. Um, there, uh, it does appear that the drug has um, maybe some activity as evidenced by a study that came out of uh, Chicago that looked at um, over 100 patients uh, that had been treated. Again, no control here. Data looked promising. Gilead has reported that patients treated on a compassionate use basis have uh, shown encouraging results. Again, no comparator. Uh, there was a study that was reported out of China. This was a randomized trial. They indicated that there was no benefit um, and that more patients were discontinuing treatment uh, in the drug arm versus placebo. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Um, but all these studies, I think, are really hard to interpret. Uh, Gilead, um, who has been involved with, with uh, running clinical trials the right way, we think, um, is set to report results any day now from a, a single-arm study in patients with uh, severe disease. Again, there's not going to be a comparison here, but this is uh, going to be a, a pretty rigorous study. And then we're going to see some results in May from a randomized trial uh, in, in patients with more moderate disease. So still, I would urge patients on this. The mechanism makes sense, why this drug could work. Um, safety is certainly going to be an issue, and we're just going to have to wait and see. Um, there's also been, uh, we learned today, some uh, results coming out of um, a clinical trial, trial evaluating a, an anti-inflammatory agent 
called Kevzara. This is actually treating uh, the actual disease itself, the inflammation process of the disease. It's not a direct antiviral. Um, uh, the patients uh, both had severe and critical disease. Uh, uh, unfortunately, there did not appear to be any benefit. Um, actually, in the p- critical subgroup of patients, the drugs appeared to have a detrimental effect. Uh, but in the severe patient cohort, there was some benefit. Uh, so we're still awaiting some phase three results, uh, but that uh, is a, that's a bit discouraging from what we what we saw. Um, uh, as far as vaccines are concerned, there are does about a dozen vaccines that have been highlighted, all in different stages of development, so all have different twists on them. Uh, probably the most high-profile one right now is coming out of a company called Moderna. This is an RNA vaccine, which encodes a key viral protein. Uh, the hope is to get the body to make the protein in its own cells, and that should mount a protective immune response. Um, this has never been tested in humans with a uh, vaccine against any coronavirus, but it has been done with other viruses, including cytomegalovirus, um, and to a lesser extent with Zika virus and other respiratory viruses uh, in humans. So uh, uh, immune responses have been shown to be mounted against these. Uh, we'll just have to wait and see if that can be done with a uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. We know that the first 45 patients have been treated, all of them, in three-dose arms, and the company has announced that, that there will be an expansion to uh, older populations. Uh, this is good news because it means that uh, so far so good, and the trial continues, and the trial, the patients are actually coming in for their booster shots. So, so far, the, drug, the vaccine appears to be safe. Uh, in June, though, that's when we're going to be getting our first hint of any potential efficacy when uh, the company and, uh, and, and NIH is running the study, we'll be looking for neutralizing antibodies to see if there are, are, are any that have been generated in cell co- culture. Now, whether this translates into protective immunity, who knows? That's probably not going to come until uh, the middle of next year. Um, and then, uh, interestingly enough, we, we learned uh, that a company out of China called CanSino is starting a phase two trial with its vaccine in Canada. So um, that's all I have to say about uh, the landscape with, with uh, therapies and vaccines, and I'll turn it over to, uh, to Brian uh, to, to uh, resume our conversation. Hey, George, so much. I think today we have such a unique opportunity for a doctor to interact with an analyst to cover these companies in terms of treatments and vaccines. So I wonder, Dr. White, would there be a question you'd like to lob into George and kind of take a minute or two, both of you, to kind of go back and forth and talk about each other's comments here today? Dr. White, go ahead. I'd like to hear where, where do you feel on vaccines? Yeah, so again, um, we, we think this approach by Moderna is very interesting. It is quite novel, having said. Um, the, the material that's being injected is, is a nucleic acid, which is supposed to encode for the actual antigen that is supposed to mount the immune response. Um, it, it, it remains to be seen whether this, going to, this is going to work. But from a manufacturing perspective, this could be extremely practical. Um, uh, Moderna can make lots and lots of this vaccine relatively easy. They just won a grant from BARDA, uh, $483 million financing commitment to uh, help with uh, clinical trial and manufacturing scale-up. Um, we've had conversations with the company that uh, they feel that they can uh, they can manufacture over 100 million doses per year potentially 
by 2022 or 23. Um, so that could be promising. Um, then there are other vaccine approaches, as you probably know, Dr. White, with uh, using attenuated virus, using other other vectors to deliver antigens. Um, those are all supposed to start later in the year, um, and uh, you know certainly just wait remains to be seen, which will which will pan out. No, I was saying I, I, go ahead. I, go ahead. I like your timeline as well. Yeah, I think it's important to be realistic about this. That, that's great information, both of you. Thank you so much, and, and very common sense and analytically driven. We're going to hand the ball off to now Deputy Chief Economist, Michael Gregory, with his take on the economy. Mr. Gregory. Well, thanks, Brian. Uh, last week, there wasn't a lot of uh, data for us to digest, but uh, we'll, get, we'll get some more for, for this week. In fact, we'll get a, a broad look at how badly the pandemic hit the U.S. and Canadian economies in the first quarter, uh, kind of as a prelude to a much uh, worse readings for Q2. Uh, for the U.S., real GDP data for Q1 are out on Wednesday, and we're expecting the economy to contract at more than an 8% annual rate with broad-based weakness apart from government spending. There's lots of uncertainty surrounding the figures, in part because the integrity of the, in, uh, the uh, economic indicators for March might have been impacted by all the business closures, and April indicators will have the same issues. However, the data are the data, and we've got to work with them. It's also an, uh, uh, emphasizes the important role of anecdotal information in doing economic assessments as well. In Canada, we get real GDP for February on Thursday, which is actually anticlimactic uh, given that Statistics Canada has already released a flash estimate for March, which was down a whopping 9%. Nevertheless, the February GDP print, which we expect will be up a tenth, will help us calibrate the full quarter, which we expect will contract at a 10% annual rate. Canada is faring worse than the U.S. because of the harder hit coming from collapsing oil prices. And for Q2, we're bracing for 40 to 45% annualized contractions on both sides of the border. Now, the fresh U.S. GDP data will no doubt be a, a topic of discussion at the Fed, with the FOMC also meeting on Wednesday. Uh, we look for the Fed to announce expanded existing and or brand new facilities to support the flow of credit to businesses and households. Now, recall that the CARES Act, which was passed at the end of last month, provided $454 billion of new capital for the Fed to buy loans and securities, mostly through special purpose vehicles. So far, the Fed has deployed $165 billion of the new funds for increased purchases of corporate loans and bonds. That program is now up at $750 billion, along with $600 billion of other business loans and $500 billion of shorter-term municipal securities. There is still $289 billion remaining to be deployed. Now, note that the Fed's new facility to purchase loans originated under the Paycheck Protection Program does not require capital since the loans are already government-guaranteed. Last week, as part of the $484 billion fourth fiscal package signed by President Trump, another $310 billion was given to the PPP, which brings the program's total to $659 billion, and the Fed could potentially buy all of this. We also look for the Fed to lift the interest rate on excess reserves, or the IOER, by at least five basis points to 0.15%, and perhaps also lift the overnight reverse repo rate 
currently 0%, also by five basis points. Now, these are just technical moves designed to address the downward pressure on the Fed funds and other uh, overnight interest rates caused by the Fed's massive liquidity buildup. The Fed's balance sheet is now $6.6 trillion, with $3.1 trillion of reserves sloshing around the system. Now, it's interesting that Congress didn't refer to last week's fiscal package as the anticipated uh, uh, phase four package. It was considered to be more of a stopgap measure and a pretty big one at that. So more fiscal policy is looming, it seems. Last week, the CBO already pegged the budget deficit for this fiscal year, including the four packages so far, at $3.7 trillion, with debt held by the public hitting 101% of GDP by this September. And both are going to get bigger. Now, in Canada last week, the federal government introduced uh, new multi-billion dollar programs uh, to support students and assist uh, commercial rent payments. And no doubt we're going to hear more from Ottawa as well. The key thing is that policymakers on both sides of the border are trying everything to ensure as many businesses and households as possible make it through the crisis. So when the economy start opening up again, growth can rebound strongly, even with a phased-in uh, approach, uh, which is becoming a common feature among many of the provincial and state plans now being announced. And uh, I'll leave it at there, uh, Brian, and head things uh, back to you. I think we're going to move on to Margaret Cairns now, Head of uh, Fixed Income and Commodity and Currencies for BMO Capital Market Threat. Go ahead, Margaret. Thank you, Brian. Uh, so as Brian mentioned, I head up Pick Macro Strategy, and so I'll focus really on the financial markets. Uh, first off, you know, U.S. Treasury yields have really settled into a range here over the past few weeks. We've got twos at about 22 basis points, tens around 65. Uh, the economic data from this mid-virus period, we think, will continue to be heavily discounted. Uh, we really need to see the extent of the rebound that will occur, hopefully, in the second half. And that's really what's needed so that we can put the massive drop uh, that's expected that Michael talked about in GDP into context. And the way I frame that is that basically once both sides of the COVID-19 impact are known, U.S. rates will then transition to a new equilibrium uh, with the curve steepening. Uh, we think twos will remain well anchored uh, by the Fed funds held at the zero bound, for which we expect to to remain the case for some time. And then we expect tends to, to gradually um, pop up closer to around 1%, steepening the curve. So the market, you know, has uh, been discussed on this call, uh, now really focusing on reopening plans. And we do expect to bounce once businesses get up and running again. However, reopenings are likely to be staggered and gradual, so the first leg of the rebound will be much lower than the sharp decline in economic activity currently underway. Uh, the phasing in of the workforce means there will remain a lingering uncertainty well into the second half of 2020. I think the challenge really for the markets uh, going forward will be to determine how the U.S. economy has been permanently altered and also how long will it take to heal the damage inflicted on the labor force from the coronavirus. We're really watching the higher, the higher frequency reads and jobless claims uh, for as evidence of the trajectory of the improvement. In terms of spread markets, we've had a, a massive uh, rebound in high-grade corporate spreads. They've narrowed 165 basis points 
since the March 23rd rides, the narrowing was sparked by the Fed's commitment to buy up to $750 billion in corporate debt in the primary and secondary markets, which was announced on March 23rd uh, when the, the rides were uh, when the, when the rides were uh, met. Uh, IG spreads uh, were about 137 basis points off the pre-COVID uh, February tights. And, you know, the Fed facilities offer valuable liquidity to struggling corporations here. The, the problem is they do very little to help the deteriorating fundamentals. Uh, some of these loans are, you know, going to have to be pay, repaid out of uh, future earnings. And, you know, as a result, we do expect another leg wider in credit spread from current levels. Uh, certainly not all the way out to the wide. Uh, corporate debt issuance has been massive, about $700 billion year to date. It's an increase of about 67% over the same period for year average. So just an incredible amount of corporate issuance. But putting that in context, you know, the site is uh, set to buy $750 billion uh, once they get the programs up and running. In terms of, in terms of upcoming events, Michael spoke about, the, so I'll skip to uh, one of the, the things we're watching closely, and that's the Treasury refunding. On May 4th, Treasury will, re- will release financing estimates for the next three months. We do expect a, a ramp up in coupon auction sizes to begin. And we think, you know, while Treasury operates in the framework of regular and predictable issuance, we think that the increase in the auction sizes will be more aggressive than in, than in the past uh, episodes given the backdrop of unlimited side QE and the enormous multi-trillion dollar deficits that, that Michael spoke about. Uh, just, I guess, in conclusion, uh, I'll summarize the side support for the Treasury market relative to issuance. It's kind of a, an important and interesting way that we like to look at it. Since uh, March 16th, the Fed has purchased $1.4 trillion in U.S. Treasuries, while Treasury has issued $950 billion. So what this means is that net issuance available to the public is uh, negative, $433 billion. Uh, basically, while issuance has ramped up, uh, the Fed support has been massive. As Michael said, the Fed now owns $3.9 trillion in U.S. Treasuries, representing 21% of the market. I do think that as Treasury coupon issuance ramps up, the Fed will stand ready to increase purchases if warranted by uh, market functioning. So with that, I'll pass it back to Brian Velsky. Thank you, Margaret. Uh, wonderful comments with respect to fixed income. Lots of clarity there, so thank you very much for that. Before we uh, provide our formal comments in terms of Canadian stocks and U.S. stocks and what's happening with the market, I'm going to ask Emily to ask all of those online in terms of how they're going to ask questions. Give them Go ahead and give them the order in terms of how to do that. Emily, go ahead. Thank you. We will now be taking questions from the telephone lines. If you wish to ask a question and you are on a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. Please press star 1 on your telephone keypad if you have a question. Should you wish to cancel it, please press pound. Please press star 1 on your telephone keypad at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while the participants register. We thank you for your patience. Thanks, Emily. With respect to strategy, first off, in Canada, several interesting things are occurring that we see in our work in terms of Canadian strategy. You know, first off, uh, given what we've seen in the crazy futures markets in terms of energy, Canada actually outperformed the U.S. last week, which, again, I think is very interesting and telling. 
Uh, number two, uh, we're seeing some very strong, what we like to call contrarian singles, uh, signals, I'm sorry, contrarian uh, think, uh, signals with respect to two of the most important sectors in Canada, number one, financials, and number two, energy. Let's start with energy. Energy, we're seeing record type of contango that we haven't seen since 2009 uh, and or earlier in the 2000s. Typically and historically, when we see this type of contango and WTI prices, typically we see a very strong market for WTI over the next 6 and 12 months. But more importantly, with respect to the stocks, um, Canadian energy stocks do very well 6 and 12 months out, which also dovetails on what happened last week uh, with respect to all this volatility in the futures markets. Canadian energy stocks actually did quite well. And in the United States, uh, energy in the United States actually was one of the better performing sectors. With respect to financials, we typically and historically see a very strong contrarian signal happen when we see loan loss provisions uh, spike. Six and 12 months out following loan loss provisions uh, following 2000 and 2009, we saw a very, very strong performance with respect to Canadian banks, especially the big five. I think there's been a lot of concerns with respect to dividend cuts or dividend suspensions. Remember, the big five uh, banks in Canada have been very strong almost 200 years of paying dividends straight through. With respect to the U.S., 40% of uh, companies are coming out with earnings this week in terms of first quarter earnings. Remember, we've suspended our year-end, calendar year-end price targets of $3,400 and $160 of earnings and transitioned them into rolling 12-month targets, principally because of the efficacy with respect to what's happening in first and second quarter earnings. We will institute, reinstitute our targets sometime this summer when we feel a little bit better about what the true earnings number is. As, as a result, we took a look at very strong trends uh, with respect to what we've seen in six prior markets where we've seen a fair market uh, in terms of prices, an earnings recession, uh, and a, in a GDP recession, which we think we're seeing right now. Typically and historically, when you see prices go down as much as they have right now in terms of the stock market and dovetailing that with last 12 months earnings, we think, according to our analysis, that given the fact that the, the cyclical bear market took 22 days and took 30-plus percent out of the market, that cyclical bear took faster in history, fastest bear market in history. And if you equate to typically when we see earnings bottoms on a trailing 12-month basis, it's 12 months. However, because it took 40% faster to get to that cyclical bear in terms of prices, we actually think that the bottom in place that we made March 23rd actually holds a lot of merit, so three months earlier than uh, potential. So if earnings are potentially going to bottom out, which estimates are saying in the fourth quarter, you get those numbers in the first quarter of next year, that's the full year. But we think it's going to be faster, and that only solidifies our call that the bottom is in place, which is a call that we've been making uh, since March 23rd. And with that, Emily, I'll hand it back to you and see if we've queued up some callers. Thank you. Once again, please press star 1 if you have a question. Our first question is from Jim Ratner with Stockbridge. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Yes, I'm sorry. Is a vaccine for COVID-19 possible if antibodies do not give rise to long-term immunity? And if so, is any company working on one? I think we'll start that off with um, Mr. Farmer. Go ahead, George. Sure. Um, so, there are two ways to elicit an immune response. Um, one is to generate antibodies. The other is to generate a, a, a T cell response. 
And it's possible that uh, if, if antibodies are not generated, that this other component of the immune system could kick into gear. Uh, generally, though, however, what we're typically used to seeing uh, antibody formation as a consequence of vaccines. So um, I don't think all is lost if we don't see an, a neutralizing antibody response, but I do think it probably increases the risk. Thank you, George. Any uh, other questions, Emily, from the field? Thank you. Our next question is from Paul Kayser with Predium Packaging. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Yeah, thank you. Um, Brian, first of all, thanks for these calls. These have been fantastic and very, uh, very insightful. Um, I think there's a question for John or for George, but uh, there's been a, a lot of discussion about vaccines and, um, and and drugs, but I've not heard any uh, about anything about, about research about why this virus impacts some people so uh, so directly, and and others have asymptomatic uh, symptoms. It doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to be completely correlated with age or or other obvious uh, demographics. Is, has there been any, is there any research going on in that in that area? I think that's a good question for Dr. White. Go ahead, Dr. White. Sure. Um, what we're actually starting to see here in some fields is a greater analysis of the data. So what we do know is that the highest percentage of deaths and, and the total number of deaths is much greater in a, in a very elderly population, 70, 80. But age may not be the most important factor. It may actually be this issue of comorbidities. And really we need to have, and this is something that I'm interested in working on, this age-adjusted uh, mortality rate that addresses comorbidities. And I think we're going to see a lot of information there, especially as we even think about these therapeutic treatments in terms of cytokine storm. And there's a lot of preliminary data on some of these medications that actually um, – address this issue of cytokine storm, which is much more common in some cancer drugs and um, arthritis drugs. So even though we hear these cases of deaths in younger persons, still the majority of deaths primarily occur in elderly persons with multiple comorbidities. And that's what I think we have to understand better because we may not truly be understanding the nature of the disease and we need to look at data more closely. I don't know if George feels differently on that, but but that's what I've been talking about to, to some of my colleagues. George, do you have anything else to layer in? Uh, no, I, I think Dr. White covered that that beautifully. I mean, certainly we have we have to, we need a better understanding of the relationship between uh, we become morbidities and and uh, and age. I think that makes a that, that's very important. Great, Emily. Any other questions? We have no further questions registered at this time. I'd now like to turn it back over to you, Mr. Belsky. Thank you very much, and thank you all for joining us again. These calls have been great value add to all of us here at BMO, and we really feel we learn something every week from everybody on this call. Remember, too, contact your BMO relationship manager and visit our webpage at bmocm.com. Each one of the people that talked uh, here on the call today with respect to not only Dr. White but our subject matter experts all have uh, research as well as other people from BMO in terms of COVID-19 insights. But please take a look at those. We're blessed and fortunate to provide this to you. Please stay well and safe, and we will speak to you very soon. Thank you for joining us.
Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.